neighbor, you are listening to the New Garden Church podcast, and we are so glad you're here. Our church meets at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person, or you can catch our gatherings after the fact on our YouTube channel. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. If you don't like the way we do worship, that's how they used to do it. Um, we're going to talk about the Psalms for a couple weeks. I'm going to be up here the whole month of August. And so I thought I'd give you a little bit of a, just a, a peek into what they thought they used to do with the Psalms. The Psalms have always been a bit of an enigma to me. Like some of them really click and then some of them I'm like, yeah, I just don't know what to do with those things. Uh, I had a professor, one of my professors during seminary, and he would, uh, later in life, he was, a, he was a counselor, a psychology professor, and later in life he got into writing haikus, which don't mean any, they're just random things. And so every time class would start, he would come in and he would write these haikus and he would give us his latest one, he would read it to us and he would sit back and he would look at us like he had just read the greatest thing ever. And he'd look around with a smile on his face and I would be like... I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. Because it didn't click with me. It didn't come easy like the meaning didn't. Now, I was in chorus in high school, and I'm a musician, and I really enjoy music. I like singing. And so I'm connected to to poetry in a a certain way. In high school, I got connected to Robert Frost. And if you're familiar with Robert Frost, he's got some really beautiful poetry. And so not all literature is lost, or not all poetry is lost on me. Some of it is but not all of it. I, but when I sat and used to sit in English class and we'd talk about uh, poetry and the teacher would say, now what did you think that meant? And I would be like, I, I don't know what that meant. It was just words on the page to me. And I don't find that way of reading or hearing psalms to be very helpful either, whether it's chanting. And also, as I was looking around on the internet, you know, you can find almost anything out there. There's also been people who have taken the Psalms, and they've transposed them over some of music, some contemporary music, and they've sung it like that, and I don't, I don't find that particularly helpful either. But what we are looking at is we're looking at a book of worship. So I say all that to say this. It's okay if the, some of the Psalms are lost on you too. It's okay, because it's kind of like we're looking at if somebody came along and they picked up, what, what are some of our old hymnals? Let's, some old Church of Christ people in here. What are some of the old hymnals that you grew up seeing in the pew in front of you? Sacred Selections, was that one? Did you know Sacred Selections? Or what was, uh, there was uh, Songs of Faith and Praise and, and changing, I don't know about in your church, but I grew up in Southern Church, but changing from one hymnal to another hymnal was like trying to change the Constitution. And it was really, really hard. Um, I had a friend who grew up uh, going to an Assembly of God church and uh, we would go hang out at his church building because he was knew the people there. So we go over there sometimes. And I would look at their hymnals. And I would be lost when I looked at their hymnals because they were so much different than ours. And I didn't know there was anything other than sacred selections out there. And so when we look at the Psalms, we're looking at a, at a worship book that was composed over a long period of time. Now, how long? Who's the most obscure person who wrote a, who wrote a song who you wouldn't think have written a song? And this will also tell you how old the Psalms are, how long, why they were written. Psalm 90 is probably the oldest Psalm we have. Who wrote Psalm 90? Without looking, anybody? Moses wrote Psalm 90. 
And so if you look at the kind of the, the width of the Psalms, they didn't get kind of reach their final com- compilation, if you will, until they were in post-exile. But it was really their worship manual, what they did when they worshiped. And it was written over a long, long period of time. And so they carried Psalm 90 around for a long time. Moses wrote it well before they, Israel settled the land, and then they'd gone into exile, and they were out fully out of the land. And so there's a few things for us to remember as we look at the Psalms. Number one is, is this is a hymnal. It's an anthology of worship life and life for Israel, which means it was written by specific people for specific people. And guess what? We're not either one of those two groups. And so some of the stuff we're not going to get, it's not going to hit us. And it was written about specific events, specific things they were lamenting about or they were happy about. And so there was really, there's some stuff in there that's just going to miss us. We're going to read it and we're not going to get it. But that, that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. Everything in the Psalms isn't going to make sense to you. Everything in the Psalms isn't going to apply to you. But there is a whole lot of really, really good stuff in the Psalms. But there's some stuff that just we just sit back and we puzzle about. Psalm 137, if you never read Psalm 137, it's a really tough psalm because in there they, they praise people who dash babies' heads against rocks. Now again, you have to understand the nature of poetry and that there was hyperbole and it was just really trying to create these vivid pictures, with they, which they sure did in that psalm. And you have psalms that are full of hope like Psalm 23, which is one that we all know, Right? The Lord is my shepherd. We all know that psalm. We all know that, and it, it gives us those, that kind of that warm feeling. And then there's Psalm 13, which is about struggle, and we can all identify with Psalm 113, where, where David's struggling and eventually says, How long, Lord, will you let me sit in this and not deliver me from this? But then he kind of creates this anthem. He says, But even though I, I'm sitting here, I will still praise you, and I will sing at the top of my lungs. But it's poetry and it's old poetry. So when we read it and we read it and we read it sometimes, it still won't click for us and that's okay. So just keep these things in mind as we kind of talk through the Psalms. And, you, and I say stuff and it really clicks with me and you're like, that doesn't work for me. And, and that's okay. It's really okay. So how do we look at the Psalms as individual Psalms because they were written to stand alone, but also as a corporate worship thing and soak up what God has for us, what God wants for us in the midst of these psalms. And much of that has to do with how you want to live your life. How we navigate this process of taping, taking the biblical witness and pushing it through our filters, because everything we have, everything that we take into our life, we push through certain filters. It's like when I look out at the world through these glasses, there's a certain way that I see the world, and when I take them off, everything's different. But I choose to wear these, and I choose to see everything in the world through these glasses. And it's like that in our minds. Everything is built up, your childhood, where you're from, how you live, all those things, who you've married, where you're at in your life. All of that pushes, the Bible pushes through all that stuff. And and how it changes us or or doesn't change us depends a lot on how willing we are to do the hard work of changing ourselves. How willing we are to do the hard work of introspection where we let our lives be laid bare before God, right? We say, God, search me and tell me where I need to change. Because that's the hard one, right? Joe Beam, I don't know if you know who Joe Beam is. He's, got, he's written a book that's pretty, probably about 20 years ago, I'm dating myself, probably about 20 years ago, a book called Seeing the Unseen about spiritual warfare. And I heard him speak a couple of times, and one of the things he said, we said, you know, if you really want to pray a dangerous prayer, pray, God, 
do what you do need to do to change me. And he says, don't pray that prayer unless you really mean it. And so when we come to Scripture, we've really got to determine whether we're serious about letting God change us. Whether we're serious about letting God work through and maybe removing some of our filters, removing some of the really bad stuff, and laying ourselves bare before God, saying, God, separate the wheat and the chaff, separate what doesn't need to be there, and get rid of what doesn't need to be there. And Psalm 1 is a pretty good place to start in all that. Psalm 1 is given its place in, in the Psalter because it's foundational, not only to the Psalms, because it is foundational to the Psalms, but it's also foundational to life. And this is the big why. This is the thing that I, I, if you don't hear anything else I say, you don't gather anything else from today, this is the one thing I want you to take away. It matters who you spend time with. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. It matters who you spend time with. If you go to any self-help book, any business book, and you look much in the Bible, one of the things you're going to hear is you, who you are, who you... Let me slow down. You are who you surround yourself with. Now, as a teenager, my parents tried to tell me that. They probably tried to tell me that. It's been a couple years since I was a teenager. They probably tried to tell me that. And I can't overstress it. I've read a lot of business books this year, and one thing they always keep coming back to when they talk about mindset and those type of things is... It matters who you surround yourself with. You're the sum total of about the five or five to seven people that are around you at any given time. So it's very, very important who you choose to surround yourself with. If you want to be good at something, if you want to be great at something, if you want to be better at something, find somebody who is good at it and go learn from them. But let's back up. Got a little ahead of myself, right? Psalm 1 starts like this. The NIV says, Blessed is the one, but the message, and I love this, says this. Eugene Peterson in his translation says, How well God must like you. Now, I wish I could live in the reality every day of my life and just soaking up the fact how much God likes me. You know, it gives me those warm, fuzzy feelings like when I'm being, when, you know, at the end of the day, the kids are finally in bed and my wife and I can sit on the couch and it's just us and there's that time of just being. Like I don't have to worry about where the kids are at. I don't have to worry about what Noah's into. Most by that time, the dog's asleep, so I don't have to worry about what the dog's into. And I can just sit on the couch with my wife and we can just relax and be there. But the unfortunate thing is that's a reality that the devil is constantly trying to steal from us. You see, he's constantly trying to sow seeds of, of doubt in our lives to make us doubt whether we're really worthy of God liking us. God likes me? That's preposterous. That's preposterous. God likes me? Now, that's ludicrous. That doesn't make any sense. It reminds me of a book that I read, and Isaac really likes it. We've, I've been reading with Isaac since he was really, really young, called The Tale of Two Pigs. It's about these two pigs. And that God invites them to come meet him. I know you've heard him talk about it before, just a brief synopsis. But at the end, there's one pig that can't do anything. He can't even keep toothpaste off his shirt. He can't do anything right. He's always late. And he goes to see God, and the only thing God tells him is, I love you. And he tells him that three times. And the pig runs out, and he's running down the street, and he says, 
How can God love me? I, I must have tricked him. I did the right thing at the right time, and God loved me, and, it, and I tricked him. I, I achieved it. I achieved it. And he looked, in a, he looked in a glass window, and he saw toothpaste and mustard, and his shirt was untucked, and everything wasn't in the right place. And he just had to come to terms with the idea that God, God just loved him. But you see, trying to live in that space also creates another issue for our ego to wrestle with. Why does God love us? Why are we blessed? See, when we're left alone in our own understanding and we're left alone in our own uh, thought process to get through this, we, we walk down a road that leaves us with two options when we think about, okay, why does God love us? And the first option is because we deserve it. And so we're entitled to it. God has chosen us and we're blessed. This was a major problem for Israel. Israel thought that they were so blessed, that they were so loved by God, that they could do anything they wanted any other day of the week. They could rob, they could steal, they could kill, they could do whatever they wanted the rest of the week. As long as on their worship day, they worshiped in the right way. They did temple things in the temple and they did everything right. As long as they did all that right, they were loved by God and they deserved to be loved by God. And they were okay. And surprisingly, at least to me, is to hear this idea of being a chosen nation thrown around when people talk about America. Which, from my perspective, is a gross misunderstanding of Scripture. And it's a tragedy waiting to happen if it gets much worse. God doesn't like you because you are you. God doesn't love me because of the things that I do. God loves us anyway. We don't deserve it. We're not entitled to it. But God gives it to us. And then there's the other fork. So we come to this fork in the road. And one of them is we deserve it and we're entitled to it. And the other one is we don't deserve it. And so we better get to work. Two very different ends of the spectrum, right? But both have the same focus, a similar focus, which is me. Either I deserve it or I need to earn it. So we have successfully removed God from the entire equation. It becomes just about us. And works-based theology, which is what that is, is I am trying to work to earn my salvation. Works-based theology is a horrible taskmaster. And you know why? Because the task is never done. We go to bed each night and what do we worry about? Whether we've been good enough that day. And we get up the next morning, and what do we worry about? Having enough time to be good enough to earn God's love the next day. That's not the relationship God has invited you into. We don't deserve it, and we don't not deserve it, because it's not about us. It doesn't sound like an enjoyable life, does it, where we worry each day whether we've done enough. And call me crazy, but I think we should enjoy life. I think God created us to enjoy life. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and the lady was talking about, she made a decision at one point in her life. She said, my happiness was being held hostage by the future. She thought, if I can just get to this point, then I'll be happy. If I can just get to that point, then I can be happy. If I get to that point, I can be happy. And she finally said, I decided one day, how about I just be happy now in this moment? And not let my happiness be held hostage by something else. 
And I believe that's what God wants from us. I believe that's what God calls us into, is he calls us into a life where we are enjoying living in him now, not waiting on heaven to be happy one day. Right now I'm reading a book by Ian Crone about enagrams. I'm not sure if you're familiar with enagrams or not. It's one of those uh, tests that determines your personality type. And if, if you want to go on a little journey of self-introspection and learn a little bit about yourself, I suggest you take the enagram test. You can find one online. And then read about it. Don't just take... It'll help you change bad behavior if that's what you want to do. Throughout the book, he talks about... As he talks about the different numbers and their, their personalities... He talks about different famous people and why they are the, who they are. He tells the story of Andre Agassi. Now, we know, is anybody, now again, I may be dating myself. Is anybody know who Andre Agassi is? He's a really good tennis player at one time. Really good tennis player. Um, had the long flowing hair and the beard stubble and was just one of those really good guys. Agassi put out a um, biography a couple years ago. And he stunned everybody in the world when he said... He hates playing tennis. He always has. He hates it when he plays now. And he always will hate, hate playing tennis. You know why he plays tennis? Anybody? Except for those who have read the book. Anybody? Not, not money. Andre Agassi is, a, is a, a three, which is a performer. And children who are threes learn that in order... The negative things that children who are threes learn is that if they're going to be loved, they've got to perform. Agassini's book says, the only way that I felt like my dad loved me was when I was playing tennis. The only time I felt like I was truly loved and accepted by my dad is when I played tennis, and so I played tennis the best way I could. And he became world champion. He was really, really good, but he hates it, and the only reason he did it was to get his dad's love. That's not what God is inviting us into. God is not inviting you to perform to a level that earns His love. That gets the blessing. God doesn't like you because you do something. God doesn't love me because I do or don't do something. God doesn't bless me because of those things. He does that because we've decided to place our lives in the right place. which isn't works-based because we don't automatically become perfect when we decide to live our life in a certain place, but we do. our journey does become better whenever we decide how we're going or who we're going to live our lives with. Oh, so then verse 1 continues, and this is out of the message. Oh, I backed up. My bad. Don't read that slide. How well God must like you. You don't walk in the ruts of those blind as bats. and You don't stand in the way of the good for nothings. You don't take your seat amongst the know-it-alls. Instead, you thrill to God's Word. You chew on Scripture day and night. You're a tree replanted in Eden. You see, it's not about what comes out of our life that God is so much interested in. It's what we're putting into our life. Because if we put the right things into our life, what will come out? The right things. The NIV in this script in this passage says, You're like a tree that's planted by streams of water, but Eugene Peterson does a much better job here where he where he paints the, the picture of us being replanted in the garden where we have complete and total access to God, where we are in tune with God, where we are, are fed by the things that God wants us to be fed by. And that's such a powerful metaphor in our day and time when we have so many things that are vying for our attention. 
I deleted social media off my phone. And on July 1, I deleted social media on my phone because it was such a time waster. I, I haven't been on Facebook in over 30 days. For some people, it's like, oh, and some of y'all like Facebook, what's that? I haven't been on Facebook, I haven't been on Instagram, I haven't been on Twitter, and I've got businesses I'm trying to run, right? And I'm, I'm intentionally ignoring those things because there's so much junk out there that can corrupt us and get into our lives and get into our minds. And the point of, of Psalm 1 is there is a place where you should be, your life should be anchored. You should be like a tree that has been replanted in Eden that is so connected to God that you are soaking up everything that God has called you into and everything that God wants from you. And your life is living out of that stream that flows through Eden. Everything flows from and finds its meaning in God. And that's the reason Psalm 1 kind of takes its place where it is at the beginning of the Psalter because it reinforces the idea that our life is found solely, completely in being connected to God. Placing a plant in the right location makes all the difference in how it lives. Location will kill, stunt, or cause a plant to thrive. I'm not a gardener. <laughs> not a gardener. But I have a rudimentary, rudimentary understanding. A plant's ability to grow and thrive is a direct result of location, which, is, which brings food, which brings water, which brings sunlight. Where it's placed makes all the difference. And then all it does is live into its purpose. Hear that again. When you plant a plant in the right place and it's being nurtured and it's being fed and it's being given water and it's being given the sunlight it needs, it lives into its purpose. This is life. Does that resonate? You see, the thing about a plant is it doesn't choose where it gets planted, does it? But guess what? We do. Right? We get to choose where we plant our lives. We get to choose where we place ourselves in this life. We get to choose what impacts our life. Whether it's being planted by the water of God and being living out of where God wants us to be at, or whether it's a group of friends that aren't really good for us. Are, and I never realized this until I was much in life, but it matters where you work at too, right? It matters what profession you choose. Because you're going to spend as much time around those people that you work with almost as much as you do at home. And so it matters what you surround yourself. And sometimes, in our culture, this is a crazy idea, but sometimes we need to leave what we're doing because we're not in a good place. And sometimes that means we need to leave jobs that aren't good for us because people we're around, we're not, and it shouldn't matter how much money you make. It shouldn't matter how much prestige you think you're getting by working in that place. If you're in an unhealthy place, if you're in a place that is not God-honoring because the people that are surrounding you, then you need to go somewhere else. Work somewhere else. And be somewhere else. I really love the wealth of worship that we have here at New Garden. 
the amount of people we have that, that have come and led us in worship and helped lead us in worship. And it seems like once a month or so I'm being introduced to a new song. Now I know most of the times they aren't new songs, but I'm 46 and I'm not on the cutting edge. About a month ago, the worship leader from, Wood, from Woodmont was here with his daughter and the three, and them two and, and Katie led a song called Great Defender, or it's called Defender. I love this song. I love this song. I mean, just so you know, because the psalms are about music, every psalm we're going to have, I'm going to have a, a song to go along with it. And I've been singing this one ever since I, I pulled it up and started just focusing on the words. Um, there's a couple of phrases in it that really stuck out to me, but I want us to, to hear it. And the words are going to, I'm going to play a video, or Campbell's going to play a video of the song, and the words are going to be on the screen. And I encourage you to sing along. It's a worship moment. And there's something powerful in this song about God and what he is doing in our lives and what we are to do in response. Hey, Campbell, go ahead and play it. Turn my mic off in case I decide to sing too. Your truth, your mercy is the shade of 
did was praise, and all I did was worship, and all I did was bow down, and all I did was stay still. Hallelujah, you have saved me, so much better your way. Hallelujah, great defender, so much better your way. In America, we teach by instruction, and we teach by example, individualism on a level that is ungodly. We teach an ideology that you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you have to make yourself into who you need to be. And the problem is it disconnects us from the source. The problem with living with the mentality that I have to do everything in my life is that we can't sit still at God's feet because we feel like we have to do something. But how much better is His way? What a simple thought to plant ourselves in the right place and to just worship and to just bow down. Pray with me. God, help us Help, no, help me. Help me to be fully reliant on you today. And to seek you and let you work in my life. 
Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.